And I'm Jeff Eaton. This is Christian Rightcast. It's a podcast where we analyze and contextualize uh, the movements and the ideas and the personalities in uh, the Christian right in order to give some context and uh, some background for how the Christian right interacts with um, the rest of uh, American and world culture and the role that it plays in both general popular culture and um, authoritarian movements uh, in our country. It's a pretty, I I think it's a pretty significant topic of late. And uh, it's one Mm -hmm. that I think has been more and more on people's minds, especially um, in the, I guess, post-Trump era, as more of the country kind of tries to come to grips with why specific groups like evangelicals in the United States were so massively you know, in support of Trump, when a lot of Americans, I think, were sort of scratching their heads for, you know, mm-hmm. that like it didn't make sense. It wasn't what they would expect. Yeah. And yeah. teasing apart, like, what the what the underlying ideologies are, what the, you know, the political history of the Christian right as a movement that sort of bridges religious faith and um, political action and, you know, social engagement, you know, what those connections are. That, that's that's a lot of what our show is about. Um, yeah, so we're not we're... really doing this in order. It's not a, a no. We're kind of touching on on themes, and we've we're tying up today a series we've been doing on um, end times eschatology and uh, dispensationalist thought. Basically, and... like end of the world narratives and like apocalyptic stuff. Um, you know, we I think in our first in our first episode we touched on the idea of like a, the long history of like these apocalyptic narratives of grand conflict between the forces of good and evil, and how historically it um, was really connected to like Christianity's sense of itself as like a persecuted faith in you know like its very early days in Rome, but how that that self identity really didn't make a whole lot of sense, especially in like Europe and, uh, you know, America in an, in an era where for, you know, thousands of years, Christianity has really been on the top of the pile, like sociologically, mm-hmm. so, as far as like its role in society, like, you know, in the right, US, we've literally never had a president who wasn't a, a prof, uh, you know, professing Christian, right. you know, it was always and, Christians arguing about whether they were a real Christian or not. Right. And so it's long been a, a, a religion of, of empire and colonization. And so it's it's kind of right. It's really silly to think about it in, in these terms now. Um, and, and like one of the themes that, you know, we've been talking about, though, this whole series on end times narratives is about the the way that that conception of, you know, one's one's role in the big picture um, that the church has carried like became wrapped up at least in certain, you know, fundamentalist movements with this idea of the end times and Mm -hmm. interpreting specific parts of the Bible as like very explicit prophecies about things that were going to happen when the end of the world was going to come and stuff like that. Um, You know, like I I think the first two episodes of this series, we covered a lot of sort of the groundwork material for what those touchstone ideas like the rapture and the antichrist and stuff like that all mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and then talked about the rise of a very, very specific, like branch of, mm-hmm. um, 
biblical prophecy interpretation called dispensationalism. And it has a specific timeline that it laid out and specific like ways of interpreting everything in scripture and connecting the dots between all these different things. Right. Um, Very specific. And and one might say creative also. Extremely Um, creative. That's been a theme as we've gone through (laughs) this, but it's, it like, well, th- this is a theme that we've said has come up in a lot of ways that fundamentalist movements approach um, the Bible. It's They bring a very specific interpretive framework to it, mm-hmm. um, a theology of you know what, what scripture means and what it implies about how they should engage with the world, mm-hmm. but they insist that there isn't an interpretive framework that it's right. just taking scripture seriously and literally, just yeah, and when it, yeah, <laughs> which is ridiculous, but it, um, because a lot of the the verses that they're they're making literal claims about are clearly written in verse and are specific to the time in which they were written and yeah, and 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 that's always been a, a sort of. I won't say uncomfortable because, you know, they, they seem to be quite comfortable with the claim despite how, you know, shaky it is at times. But it's always been at least part of the tension in inherent in that theory. You know, the yeah. mm-hmm. the the most durable interpretive framework is the one that no one realizes is an interpretive framework at all. You mm-hmm. know, and I think sure. that's one of the reasons that people can find it so frustrating to try to engage with fundamentalism about its beliefs about scripture and right. about the world because it's it, it continues to place itself as just you know reading the plain and literal truth of it and it's all you people who bring these fancy ideas and complicated right. theories Mm-hmm. And you see that in dispensationalism too, about the you know how to interpret Bible prophecy. It brings a very specific and idiosyncratic set of ideas, very. Um, but also insists that it's just quote taking it seriously and you know reading it plainly and stuff like that. Um, and what's what we're going to be talking about in this episode is one specific breakout book that. Um, helped put maybe not the word dispensationalism on the map, but it helped put dispensationalist ideas, that sort of interpretive framework and that way of looking at particular events and that, you know, set of key ideas to look for and, you know, as future events unfolded, it put those things sort of in the popular consciousness as synonymous with Bible prophecy. And the book is called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal. Yeah, wait. Okay. Are we going there next? Okay. Um, Well, we'll hit a couple of questions uh, that we've gotten from folks uh, as, as, you know, over the course of this series. But that's, that's what we're going to, that's what we're going to dig into this episode. The the, the Late Great Planet Earth and Mm -hmm. sort of what it's, what it actually said, how it approached these ideas and, you know, a little bit of what its long-term impact was. Um, mm-hmm. I won't say it's going to be, um, it's not a good read. Uh, it's, it's not a <laughs> No, book, and um, it really is, it's a, it's like, it's, it's like if you got 
a a hundred and seventy page synopsis of QAnon written by a QAnon believer, but you had never read anything about QAnon before, and you're just reading it. Like, yes. there's not a lot of yeah. So so it's um, it's it yeah. reads very much like a conspiracy theory pamphlet that you know that would have been printed off in a zine in the seventies and. I, the, like, the comparison I, I, I made was like, you know, if you go to a YouTube channel of like, you know, like the Manosphere, you know, yeah. someone trying to explain like, what is a Sigma male? And like, you just <laughs> try to make sense of like uh-huh. all of these references and like, like dog whistles that they're sort of weaving into this mm-hmm. two hour long video. And you still come away with it with feeling like, I'm still not quite clear on the details there that's the feeling that you can very easily get reading yeah i don't think we'd recommend that you just go and read it we're gonna try to contextualize it a little bit it was not easy to to, it was pretty hard to yeah yeah not Um, because of its complexity but just (laughs) yeah um Uh, we'll we'll get into it but um so we had some audience questions right um yeah um so one eight Z Kiwi on Twitter asks, um, were there any Christian in times movies made in the silent era? Uh, what were the first in times movies? How were these stories received? And what are the data voids concerning in times media? That we, we were actually talking about this a little before the episode. And I, I think that's an interesting one. As far as we could tell in the research that we did, there there weren't really any um, like end times, you know, apocalypse movies that came out before like, you know, at best, like the the late 60s. Um, no, you know, there- I, I would make an argument, although I do want to be very careful to differentiate between actual um, violent white supremacists and the kinds of authoritarians we're going to be talking about in this episode. I would make a case that um, that the birth of a nation could f- kind of fit into that um, yeah. into well, that genre as an end times, as sort of an apocalypse narrative. Yeah, and, and, um, and, I think that- and that also so that the the knights of the Ku Klux Klan saw it as a Christian narrative. Um, well, that's that's interesting too yeah. because that ties in with that the the idea that we mentioned on the first episode of this series that mm-hmm. um, that end times slash apocalyptic narratives don't necessarily have to focus on like the destructive end of the world stuff. Sure, it's that climactic conflict between ultimate good and ultimate evil. Right like with the supernatural backdrop and it, yeah. those those thematic elements i think you can definitely see there in a lot of those really like in films like that that's really a part of how those movements justify themselves right. to themselves exactly. even if there isn't like the quote-unquote end times like end of the world narrative right as rapture movies go we're not aware of any but yeah um but we are also not historians of of the silent film era 
Uh, we couldn't find anything. Um, yeah, and and like most of the books that we you know went through that we were you know talking about the the role of these films in you know the development of the you know the rise of the Christian right and popular culture, you know they they didn't really touch on anything earlier than like some fleeting mentions of. Um, if footmen tire you, you know, what will horses do? That like weird, right. that, that weird, like Estes Perkle film about Cuba invading America. Right. Um, and it's mostly a preaching about the uh, yeah. end times. Yeah. And, and I think that touches on like what, what there were more examples of from earlier times. Like yeah. there were, there were churches and Christian like filmmakers and directors mm-hmm. that were doing like, um, almost like educational or instructional films about oh, evangelism and stuff like that. One thing that I read w- was that um, after, I think after World War II, a lot of uh, filmmaking equipment was given to churches. Um, oh, a lot like, of the left, like the things that had been used to make uh, propaganda films for, wow. for the allies was, and that the the equipment that was used to make a thief in the night is it was because they had that stuff because of the the surplus of equipment that was gifted to to churches during that that's yeah. wild yeah and, and like the the thief in a thief in the night the one of the really influential like first films of the type um was produced by a group of like you know filmmakers who were associated with a church who did have a history of doing like you know short evangelistic films mm-hmm. and stuff like that before they like teamed up with you know you know folks with from a b movie background and ended up producing that film right, like, but also sorry go ahead no, no 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 but you had one thing that you said is you think that the the apocalypse lit, uh media really grew as christian media grew and i think that the, it really grew up after World War II. Uh, you know, I know this was movie was made in 1972. Mm-hmm. Two, um, but uh, I think in those decades, churches started making more, f- filming more things. They started making little movies to, sh- you know, and and eventually it got bigger and bigger. And you talked a lot about the the media. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, and I think the book uh, Evangelicals Incorporated is one that we've you know mentioned a couple of times yeah. in the series. It covers a lot of that, like the rise of Christian media and publishing as a significant factor in like the mm-hmm. like basically the twentieth century. Uh, you know how how fundamentalism and evangelicalism's relationship with popular culture evolved is right. really tied with that and i think this this like the role of rapture and end time stuff is very tangled up in that particular arc and right. like if you go look before that there there it, it is really hard to find those kinds of examples it's just mostly yeah. theology at that point mm-hmm. um and then i think bob bobbert unwise on twitter also asks how this plays into the christian rights obsession with israel and like i think we've also touched on this a couple of times in talking about like the nature of like the complicated and and fraught role of antisemitism in the church's history and how right. like dispensationalism in particular is unique because it sort of builds its timeline of the future and bible prophecy around the idea that 
um, you know, the Jewish people slash Israel have a key role in the end times and, you know, Israel's going to become a nation again and then Christians will be raptured and then all these Bible prophecies will play out. Like well, it's very specific about that. Yeah. And, and so it's important, I think, to specify that it's not all of the Christian right that is obsessed with Israel. Mm -hmm. This is, this is something that we call Christian Zionism, which is kind of what what uh, Christian dispensationalism ends up being, and and uh, and it the 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 prophecy is that um, Jewish people will all return to Israel, and um, that, or as it's understood, um, that after the rapture, a hundred hundred and forty four thousand, at least in some interpretations will uh convert to uh evangelical christianity and begin um trying to convert the rest of the world and many will suffer and die in the coming seven-year tribulation um it it's um it it ends with you know with jewish people not being jewish anymore right, right. It, so it's it's fundamentally genocidal in its outlook it, it, it either either the jewish people because they've become christians are are executed you know by the forces of evil in the seven year tribulation tortured and executed or 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 you know it's this um by by turning away from their Jewishness and becoming evangelical Christians. So yeah, and yeah. it's it, you know we we we've talked about it before that it's uh, the like at the time that dispensationalism was sort of built, you know, in like the the mid eighteen hundreds. Um, in some ways, it was explicitly pushing back against theories of bible prophecy interpretation that were very explicit about the idea that god had just discarded the jewish people and right had no so they were but, pushing against a different anti-semitic interpretation yeah, it, it's, of christianity as opposed it, yeah it's not like a good guys versus bad guys on the anti-semitism front it's no. that there were specific ways of they had a very different take on it that was better in some ways, but at the same time relegated the Jewish race and religion and people to a sort of ace in the hole for God's master plan that would eventually just become Christians or be killed in the giant war. Yeah. It's not a great role, but yeah. and, that, and I think that's why it's complicated and why the vast majority of Christians who do hold to these ideas would probably be shocked and angry to hear it suggested that there is anti-Semitism there because it's sort of like the way that like in the manosphere, there's this idea, there's this sense of like elevating the idea of a woman to this, you know, this incredible, you know, almost deity-like position but also simultaneously being really, really ugly and misogynistic yeah. at the same time. It, it's this, there's this 
lip service given I to I think they might be a little more uh, self-aware than the, these evangelicals, to be honest. But uh, I think the misogyny, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, but but I, I mean, like the that that dualism that's present of you know, there's lip service given to this important and fundamental role that is there in God's plan, but at the end of the day, it's a really terrible role. And yeah. it doesn't actually allow any agency. It doesn't allow them to remain what it, it, you know, Judaism is wiped out in this right, in, right. In the framework. So, so the the idea of that ideology coming with like an obsession with Israel, it mm-hmm. I, I would say it's it's deeply rooted in the fact that. Israel as a nation is a critical part of the dispensationalist timeline. And post-1948, when Israel became a nation again, Mm -hmm. that became like the big ace in the hole that dispensationalists had to prove that their prophecies were going to come true. That they had been saying for 50 years, 100 years that this was going to happen, and then it happened. And that was their big proof. And I think that is one of the things that's really tangled up with that. Just the the long tail of how central that was to the dispensationalist view of we are, you know, what we think is going to happen is the truth and we've got proof. Right. So, yeah. So I think we can move on. Um, Ad Jagged Star One asks, why was the writing so poor? And like it has a multi-part question, but I think I I would say it's pretty common that you're not going to, I think this question is probably about the, the A Thief in the Night um, movie. But, but it can be asked but it reasonably could also, for a lot of these for books. A lot of these, also for this book that we read and we're going to discuss. Uh, I think that it's it's because you, you're not going to really find great art in um, in something that with, a, with such a rigidly defined, you know, answers to questions. It's not, you know, I think that great art asks... Um, deeper questions, and this isn't doing that. It's it's got a, a specifically you know predefined program that is com- utterly sure is going to happen, and and its goal is just to scare people into converting. So these this you know I, I it's not really grappling with the you know the the deep questions of humanness or anything like that. No, it's no, the Sistine Chapel. It is not. Um, no. So but, yeah, but, yeah. You like there are there are you know great but but there's not great not going to be great evangelical art. I shouldn't have said Christian art. Probably and, it's evangelical. And I, art. and I think it's worth noting that like this particular critique isn't um it, you know it's not just like us as people who used to be, you know, either in or adjacent to evangelicalism saying, ah, that's a bunch of, you know, that's a bunch of crap. Like even inside of the evangelical world, there have been fundamental critiques of the way it engages with art and, Mm -hmm. um, and creation. Like I think the Mark Knowles book, uh, the scandal of the evangelical mind Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, Francie, Francis Schaefer, or sorry, uh, who was going by the name Frankie Schaefer at the time, Mm -hmm. um, wrote uh, Addicted to Mediocrity. Uh, yeah, Fr- Frank Schaefer. Um, he wrote a book called Addicted to Mediocrity. It was all about this idea of like prioritizing the sort of um, tactical 
um, goal of conversion and convincing people to live a certain way mm-hmm. over the expressive and explored exploratory nature of like art as right. a practice. And yeah. I think that comes through. It's sort of like, you know, there, there aren't a lot of moving and beautiful technical manuals either, you know, it, it's, because right. it, it's not the purpose they're written for. Um, I think, I think that's really tied up with, you know, with that question. Yeah. Yeah. So then the other parts of this question are why the various deviations from revelation and for what purpose, why a literal interpretation of a metaphorical book, who believes this stuff and what is their religious background, which I think that part we've been over a lot. And I don't, the the person, this person asks, what is their psychological background? I'm not totally sure what that's getting at. I I feel like I'd, I'd probably be, you know, it, it, it's pretty far out of our lane to speculate. To speculate on, on, or on, yeah. And on what that question means even. um, I think like, you know, the, fundamentalist and you know evangelical groups are like sort of a core of like ideological adherence to this particular mm-hmm. school and school specifically of- christian dispensationalists as yes. you've been over a lot and a literal interpretation of a metaphorical book i mean this is just kind of what evangelicals do right they do this with the creation story um i I, I I have some qualms with the idea that it's a literal interpretation. Really, yeah. And I, I think, mean, I think that's sort of what we were talking about a, a little earlier too. It's like the the literal is a term of art. When, when right. Like that. nowhere does the Bible say that the Antichrist is a human man, right? But they've right. all kind of just kind of uh, assumed that that it is and. Um, I mean, the, the idea of the, the 10 diadems that are just got like the, uh, it's all very, it's, it's really a pretty creative interpretation and one that's uh, grounded in a lot of, uh, you know, American cold war politics. And it's, I would not call it a literal interpretation. Um, Yeah. In, in some ways it's sort of like, um, you know how in like in, in the fan fiction world, there's like mm-hmm. dueling champs of like how you interpret like different characters roles and you know what happens. Yeah, I would call between, it. It's very fan fiction. Yeah. And like yeah. The, the idea of the difference between what's canon mm-hmm. and like canon doesn't mean it's literally in the books. It's more about compatibility with the books. And and so what this group, this specific, but you so it's like, and what this specific school of of Christian, yeah, thinkers thinks is canon as yeah, yeah. It, there, there's a lot of interpretation that goes into all of that stuff, and it's really informed by Americanness. Like this book that we're going to talk about by Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth. There's a there's a section that's a where the author says that the 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 that God's will is not um, peace and na- international cooperation, but nationalism for for government. Yeah. So well, do do we do we um, want to jump right in now to to. Yeah, to, yeah. Because I feel like I, I this is terrible, but I'm like chomping at the bit. 
because I, I like <laughs> terrible, terrible book, and yeah. I want to get it off my chest. Let's get all yeah, yeah. So, so uh, let's let's do it. So, um, like I said, this was like reading a a conspiracy theory manual. Yeah, with, and yeah. Like I, we touched on it a little bit in the in um, I think the second episode of this series um, mm-hmm. about like the rise of Christian publishing and stuff, but um, you know the the late Great Planet Earth in particular, um, it came out in like 1970, um, and it's important to recognize like the the role that it played. Hal Lindsey was basically a you know, uh, he studied theology at one of the dispensationalist, you know, you know, seminaries that had, mm-hmm. you know, the dispensationalist movement, you know, built up. Um, and he'd gone and he'd worked with Campus Crusade for Christ for years. You know, he'd preached to college students at UC Berkeley and San Francisco and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and he, like that was, was his background. And it was ghost written by Carol Carlson, who may have written most of it um and and also and ended up going on to write several books for him um and also to have kind of a career in in writing uh, apocalyptic books she wrote for david jeremiah another dispensationalist and she she also wrote a book herself uh for under her own name about corey ten boom yeah yeah and i think that's one of the the tricky aspects of this because um, you know, Hal Lindsey has, in the years since, made a career of talking about this stuff. Um, yeah, you know, it's it, it. The material in it is definitely what Hal Lindsey believes. It's not like he just slapped his name on no, some no. ideas, but like that. You know, it it it, it was the degree yeah. to which he handed an outline to somebody and had her ghostwrite yeah. it or whatever. It, it, it's unclear. Um, but it's, but it's not like it's skillfully and beautifully written. Or yeah, yeah. I, it, wanna, I do want to say that. Yeah, <laughs> even if this woman may have done most of the work, I don't, I don't, and I don't know. I for sure if she did, I've just seen it. Yeah, it's sort of speculated. Um, but but what what is interesting is the, like the style and the voice of it. Yeah, um, seems to be in line with like the emphasis that Lindsay that Hal Lindsey put on a lot of his preaching and communication yeah. and stuff like that. Like it was very youth oriented, which, mm-hmm. you know, in the 1970s, you know, was basically about like tapping into this sense of counterculture, you know, very curiosity. Yeah. And um, there's a, there, there's a couple of, you know, good pieces that dig deeper into Lindsay's background and like the rise of this book and, you know, where it like, you know, where it fit in in American culture that we've mentioned in some of those previous episodes. But, um, and he, yeah. talks, he talks a lot about the, uh, the youth leaving the, inst- the, you know, the institutional church and, and yeah, because it's, yeah. So it, it, like that idea of, the like 1960s, 1970s counterculture movement among like the youth being a significant migration away from not just like American, you know, conservative American culture, but also from, you know, the church, quote unquote, was a big concern. And evangelical publishers were like actively trying to court the youth market at the time. Um, and because Lindsay's we book. this we knew that that the youth market was 
what sold <laughs> albums and you know exactly <laughs> and, and that's where like that you know the stuff from evangelicals incorporated sheds interesting light on that like mm-hmm. the the way that theological messages and the the sort of culture of christianity ended up being shaped by what messages could be sold effectively as and, books and stuff like that and how copies did you say this book ended up selling so um it sold uh i think let me see it it sold when it first came out um it was published by zondervan one of the you know one of the big christian publishers um which is you know dwarfed by a lot of the secular publishing world but it was still one of the you know sort of powerhouses of christian publishing Mm -hmm. it came out in i think uh, i think like 70 and it sold like either half a million or a million copies. Yeah. Okay. It was uh, half a million copies, like right out of the gate Mm -hmm. and was very quickly picked up by, um, Bantam publishing, um, for secular for, you know, to basically they bought the rights to do a mass market edition right? and they didn't alter the text at all, but they did like, a a redesigned cover that had like the very 1970s, you know, block print Mm -hmm. with, you know, you know, ominous lettering, you know, yeah. the late great planet Earth. And one of the things that's mentioned in one of the articles that we've, that we're linking to is that it actually looks a lot like the cover of the book Chariots of the Gods, which right. had just come out mm-hmm. about like, you know, ancient aliens, aliens yeah. coming to Earth and helping build the pyramids and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And that's honestly that idea of like tapping into, uh, 60s 70s counterculture interest in the new age and stuff like that is exactly like how the book opens like Mm. it's not just a cover design and a branding Lindsay like opens with an anecdote about like people getting you know their palms read and you know know, yeah and he tries to he tries to situate this in with you know people who were interested in the same kinds of things even though later he's gonna say that astrology is demonic and and yeah it's it's, he he acts (laughs) like it's hey this is just one of those many ways you can look for truth but you know by chapter 11 it's gonna be also your babylon mystery the great you know you're 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 in trouble Mm -hmm. um but so before we dig into like some of the details, I think one of the interesting things for me is that it's the book doesn't actually attempt to explain dispensationalism. It doesn't even no. name dispensationalism at all. It does not. And yeah. I think that that ties back into what we were talking about, that theme of, um, you know, fundamentalism and dispensationalism in particular aren't really comfortable with the idea that they are one interpretive framework among no. many even inside of christianity they want to be the interpretive framework which exactly. really is true of every evangelical movement or theology yes. you know so yeah they're not gonna say nobody's gonna say that they're quiverful or that they're reconstructionist or yeah we're just plain yeah. old bible believing christians right you know? yeah and that i think that really comes through because like 100% of the material in this book is about just quote biblical prophecy and quote what the Bible says and the idea that there's a whole, you know, there's two millennia and a huge diverse Christian culture of different ways of looking at these things is entirely erased. It's given brief lip service in when talking about some pastors dismiss these things. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. 
but like it, it, it so it doesn't really explain dispensationalism per se it doesn't even no. explain the bible to somebody who isn't already deeply familiar with the no, bible it which is why it's a cultural understanding how i don't even know why bantam would have picked this up or how it could have it, it sold, sold half a million copies really fast so i mean i my copy was printed in let's see i think in 1973 and it, it's it says it's the 27th printing this it, was, it sold millions and millions yeah, of copies. Yeah, at, at 73, it says more than 2 million in print. Um, and, and and it can be a little frustrating and confusing reading yeah. it and saying, why did this sell so many copies? And, mm-hmm. and it's hard to understand because it's it's kind of um, it, it, very in-group oriented and it's not easy to understand if unless you have been steeped in this. I, I think of it as sort of like, you know, the, you know, when that magical point in time when the history channel stopped being mostly history yeah. and started doing like shows about ancient aliens. Yes. Conspiracy it, it, theory channel. Yeah. yeah. This feels like a literary version of a history channel special on the end times from that era. I bet um, the history channel has done things on this. That oh, it was... <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah. And like, it's not terribly coherent. Um, no, and it's like a smorgasbord of references to dispensationalism in the Bible and current events in the shape of an argument. Um, mm-hmm. But like it, it doesn't hold together really coherently. But I, I, no. I, I, I kind of break it down into three sections. Yeah. The, the okay. Book. Okay. The first one is like Bible prophecy is legit and you should listen to it. And it, mm-hmm. it's like first, like probably probably four or five chapters and it just basically carpet bombs the reader with like factoids and assertions and you know brief snippets of quotes from the bible and you know declarations like and as bible scholars know this happened in this year and just breezes on by it's like mm-hmm. loads and loads of that kind of rapid fire stuff and it it's it, it leans heavily on the idea that like is you know also popular in many other, you know, fundamentalist and, you know, the the sort of literalist camp not on the idea that there's like, well, there's 300 different prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus, and they all came true because Jesus was born. <laughs> and then there, are, there were, it says there are 500 in the New Testament about the yes. second coming. Uh, yeah. And, and, like, and it says that, that one in 25 verses in the New Testament is about the second coming of Jesus, which... I, I never understood that to be the case. Well, if you count like the re- if you count the Book of Revelation as all being about the second coming of Jesus, how many verses does it? I don't have? know. You know I don't think that's one in twenty. Later. I don't think it's um, that. That book is not that long. It's not. It's not one in twenty. You know. Anyway. Yeah, I, but like it, it's it has that kind of carpet bomb you with impressive mm-hmm. numbers and quotes and you know, noting that unnamed Bible scholars have come to believe X and then moving on. And it just assumes that you can't look into these things. I mean, this, right. I guess this was before Google, but it, it, it yeah. was indeed. Um, <laughs> but, but like, uh, it, it, and then it also leans very heavily on like, there's a whole chapter on like the idea that, you know, that we mentioned earlier, that the fact that Israel exists as an independent, you know, right. recognized nation is ironclad proof of you know the dispensationalist framework which mm-hmm. no. is 
extra ironic given the fact that in the original dispensationalist timeline, the rapture was supposed to happen before Israel became a nation. Okay. Um, and the late great planet Earth actually came at a time when there was actually a lot of back and forth jockeying inside of dispensationalist theology circles about what was the right way to sort of resolve this fundamental question. Yeah, and at one point he he does su suggest that there are some some different uh, some debates among dispensationalists about the timeline. Right. Yeah, and like there's a couple of other writers like um I think the the book Super Church that we've also quoted from before mm -hmm. um it it notes that like Lynn like the late great planet earth as a book the role it essentially played in dispensationalism was shouting vigorously there doesn't have to be a a coherent timeline now you can just shout out when you think a current event sounds prophecy like <laughs> and say it's important like mm -hmm. yeah. it sort of embraced that that inherent chaos where yeah now our lives are just spent staring at the news and saying is this prophecy is this prophecy uh, and it, it embraced that in a way that was actual you know i i don't want to go too far with it but you know people have talked about like the engaging quality of the QAnon movement being participatory the idea yeah. that it it calls on all of the people that think this is legitimate to go out there and like try to find the shipping company website that you think has secret codes about, you know, oh, get yeah. children. Like that quality is something that Lindsay leans into. That, oh, you know, this for idea sure. that everyone can now just study current events and look at the Bible and, and that, decide, right. I think I've figured out when the rapture is. Um, yes. But like, after that initial like Bible prophecy is legitimate because look at these hundreds of prophecies that have come true. Mm -hmm. It then lays out sort of the here's stuff that's going to happen section. It's like a guided tour of like his rough timeline of Bible prophecy as dispensationalism sees it. And as Hal Lindsey emphasizes it mm -hmm. and like current politics and current events, how they, how they're all, on a, you know, runaway course to crash into each other with, you know, it, it's basically his, what we think the future is going to look like. Here are the things that Revelation says are going to happen. Yeah. It's pretty jumbled. And this is also where, like, I think the book really kind of goes off the rails as a coherent narrative mm -hmm. because he's never willing to explain, like, to step back and explain. So here's the dispensationalist timeline that we think is going to happen. So it's really unclear why he's like suddenly got a chapter on like, yes, Russia is actually called Gog in the Bible and, mm -hmm. you know, stuff like that. It's just he sort of throws it at you and constructs this timeline as he goes. Right. It, this is also the section that like. I, I, I want to uh, say he didn't come up with any of this. Like, no, 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 no. He, this no. Was so, these were things that fundamentalist preachers were teaching at the time. I, yeah. Um, yeah, like this isn't like original work of theology by no, Paul Lindsay. This no, no, is no. like he is popularizing and framing and presenting a lot of these sort of different takes on the dispensationalist timeline mm -hmm. that had been floating around. And it's also important to note that this whole like middle section of what the Bible lays out is going to happen, quote unquote. Um, I kind of mentally have subtitled it How Lindsay Does a Racism. Yeah. Um, because 
it it, it just hits on so many like eye popping like racism buttons along mm-hmm, the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but so, many many of them. It, like some of them are like. I mean, you know, obviously he is willing to talk about like whole nations full of people as like one mega entity that is going to do a thing. Well, he, he, I mean, sure. he, he talks about China as the yellow peril right. in his words. <laughs> he uses, he talks about um, the Chinese and, and about Asian people generally using the word hordes constantly he he leans Um, on all of those deeply racist tropes and frames for talking about right he he any racial group he's he says he's a little more guarded in the way that he's anti-black i mean he's he's clearly against uh like post-colonial movements in in african countries quote black africa will join the arabs in fighting israel because they're communist sympathizers right and he talks he talks specifically about black churches i think when he talks about urban when he talks about churches in the cities that are practicing witchcraft i think that he's drawing on uh, like you know yeah that I think yeah, we've briefly touched on like fundamental tensions between like different schools of fundamentalism and mm-hmm. like where the where the theology fundamentalism is opposed to the like the charismatic movement in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and I think and historically the charismatic movement was really, really way more racially diverse than a lot of um the evangelical and and still is really right and so like there's there's a lot of opportunities for that kind of coded language to sneak in yes Uh, and and like yeah if you could pick an ethnic group of some kind that is mentioned in the late great planet earth and there are really really racist tropes <laughs> that are used oh yeah to like yeah um it, there's a whole chapter on basically the role of arab nations in the middle east and the conflict with israel and like right. the title of the chapter is sheik to sheik right and it's like it, it it's but but the which which is racist but arguably not as racist as the chapter called the yellow peril yes um, yeah it, it, it's awful. and honestly i think um, that's mostly because he just didn't know much about no I, I i think he just didn't know any slurs about yeah therapy. oh yeah i mean he, it, like, he talks if they had gleefully been, about oh, hey, displacement of palestinians and the you know and he, he's he you know he talks you know happily gleefully really about the um just displacement of palestinians and suffering of arab con- people in arab countries and he sees them their only role as being to uh you a, know a foil, so, for a foil for israel right um and but but like also i think there just isn't as deep and long a history of anti-arab racism so there just wasn't as much for him to draw on um uh, or yeah but he, but he he's really into palestinian suffering because yes. it moves 
it moves the the narrative along for the the yeah. dispensationalist timeline. But um, but yeah, like it. But once you, once you sort of like shift past this like timeline, he sort of vaguely lays out. There's this like final. And now we talk about the end of the world section where he kind of lays out the idea of like the Antichrist is here and, you know, he's probably alive right now and the rapture is going to come and what's it going to be like? And there's going to be the battle of Armageddon and, you know, World War Three. And then Jesus is going to come back and that's why everybody should repent. And oh, but he like, says it would be wrong to speculate about who the Antichrist might be. It would be wrong to speculate, but he's probably alive right now. We right. think he's in europe or seen it's like it yeah it it's i think a phrase that i heard growing up uh someone say was well you know jesus said that we don't know the day or the hour of the of his second coming but we might know the week really and, what? yes oh no and, that and, seems like a really and it's like uh that's that's, that's really so st- one of those letter of the law kinds of things that, you know, uh, really really um stretching the the context of yeah hmm. and and I think he Lindsay leans on that stuff because as much as he gives lip service to the idea throughout the book that you know we can't truly know exactly when this stuff is going to occur like he also came out and publicly said 1998 was going to be the year of you know, the second coming. And in and, the book, he says very also that it's going to be exactly seven years from the time that the Antichrist figure recovers from a mortal wound or something. Yeah. Like, you know, there's, there's a lot of those timeline oriented things that like, so he thinks we'd will know, you know, but well, but like a lot of his, uh, you know, Lindsay and a lot of the folks from like his sort of school of, I won't even say school of thought. It's like the, the, his bent, mm-hmm. um, emphasized that like, well, there's this very strict timeline that we know explicitly from scripture, but what we don't know is exactly when it kicks off. So the idea of like looking around for current events that you can match to some point mm-hmm. in this timeline of rapture of like end times events is also about figuring out, oh, we know exactly where we are in the timeline now. So now we can start ticking things off. I, you know what? Can... I just thought of, I wonder, I really wonder, given what he said about not speculating, if he specul- ever speculated that Obama was the Antichrist. I doubt it since he I... seems to think the Antichrist comes out of, out of, a newly uh, erected, newly established Roman Empire. Yeah. Um, so, so we 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 sort of went back and forth on whether we not we wanted to go like step by step through the book mm-hmm. or not, and that feels like <sighs> if that's we... that's a difficult slog. Um, yeah. There's some high points we're going to touch on, but we're we're like we we don't want to drag you through that. Um, like I think the the opening of the book is very strange we we mentioned yes. that like it is on like you know there's you know it, it attempts to tie in the idea of biblical prophecy to like the 60s and 70s counterculture influence in new age and spirituality stuff mm-hmm. um like it starts out with this weird anecdote that i think really does some heavy lifting making biblical prophecy conspiracy theorists seem edgier and cooler than they are um 
It says, you know, it was a perfect night for a party. The warm California evening, the lemon trees perfumed the patio, and flickering tiki torches cast shadows over a lavish table. The aroma of steak sizzling on the grill was tantalizing, and we wished someone would give us the signal to eat. To our dismay, we discovered no one else was outside, and we were alone, dot, 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 with our appetites. <laughs> I was like, is that? Is that an innuendo? Like, I, I don't uh, understand. But I then don't know what talks about how, like, so as they waited for dinner, all of them gathered around and, like, you know, someone did palm reading and fortune telling. And did, it, Lindsay, <laughs> did Lindsay have a palm reading done? Is that what it's, it's, it's very unclear because it's the sort of broad, generic we <laughs> that makes uh, it sound like sort of yeah it's a it's a placeholder anecdote in the narrative but he's not actually saying i personally went to a no. party where we no no poems read. no but it it's but like sadly that is like the most poetic and lyrical portion of the book because very quickly it dives into the sort of like and as we know from history everyone has always been interested in knowing the future and you know mm-hmm. talks about palm I... reading and astrology and then it goes into the and the Bible is full of prophecy, too. It's, so I yeah. want to talk really briefly about a... I don't know if you read the same edition that I did, but mine opens with uh, a, a little passage from uh, of Hal Lindsey speaking in a docu- documentary film called The Return. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. no, my, my edition doesn't have that. So he says... I, I, it was an interesting passage too. He says, you know, I used to come to the beach to get away from things, just the relaxing of the way. He does not write this lyrically in any of the rest of the book, but he says, but now even the ocean is a reminder that man may be running out of time. Scientists tell us today that we are approaching a time when the ocean may not be able to sustain life anymore. So I just found it really interesting that, that what he got from that is that we should do this prophecy and not maybe we should try to conserve life in the ocean and and so it's a really short little passage uh it talks about how if we don't solve these problems in this decade we are approaching the time when they will be beyond our capacity to control so he he uh you know he predicts catastrophe and then he says um I believe this generation is overlooking the most authentic voice of all, and that's the voice of the Hebrew prophets. Now he's going to have a really uh, uh, idiosyncratic interpretation of what the Hebrew prophets predicted, yeah. and he, but he he says ultimately um, he 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 believes that that the the way that world history is panning out nations would fit into a certain this is a quote into a certain power pattern and all of this would be around the most important sign of all again this is a quote this is not me that that is the jew returning to the land of israel after thousands of years of being dispersed the jew is the most important sign to this generation and now he he repeatedly refers to jewish people as the jew throughout this yeah um so um and that's that's how my book opens it's uh so i I realize that's actually like placed as like an introduction it's not it's it's not it's before the introduction it's it's, interesting yeah 
Yeah. Okay. So yeah, it, it it looks like in between different editions, they like shuffled some of those things around and put put new. Th- yeah. Oh, do you have it in yours? Um. I so I I realized looking through it, I have that. Um. But it's like a weird little introductory forward kind oh, of section. Okay. You should ver- yeah. in mine. It's placed in on the very first page when you before the before the copyright and everything. So. Oh wow! Yeah. No, mine goes like you know copyright contents acknowledgements introduction giant boilerplate of the late great planet earth in the typeface that yeah they, you know mm-hmm. licensed then that little like excerpt from the return yeah and then it goes into the story about them getting their palms ready i just found that passage so unsettling and um well i think that yeah. that ties in with the i mean we're talking about like why at this moment in time the late great planet earth seemed to like really break through mm-hmm. and I think that like 60s, you know, that the the era of the 60s and like, you know, 1970 is when it came out. So it's not even like you could say the 70s were, yeah. uh, you know, the era that it emerged in. It came out of the 60s and that was like, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. Um, it was only like 20 years after World War II. But I also uh, think it's it, very... 20 to 25 I, it's very significant that they he was talking about environmental collapse yes. and catastrophe, and that this is what they chose to do with it. It was well, and, but like it's also like that era when the post-war optimism about the continual improving of things and the mm-hmm. endless everything is going to get better was really having the shine knocked off of it right. and things sure. like broadly world concern about the environment and you know. Things like um, this is when like worries about like, quote, out of control population growth and stuff like that were really starting. You know, we know that this was fundamental, a racist movement, the population control movement. But But like um, these general this general cluster of concerns about like the world is getting worse and it's not something that like we can individually necessarily alter. It's just things are getting bad and yeah but but there were things we could have altered yes like collectively it was definitely within our power to like stop using pesticides and stuff like that or stop overfishing or or, you know putting pollution into the ocean and but but from Lindsay's Uh. perspective i i think and and like from that apocalyptic perspective Mm -hmm. those are very useful things because much yeah. like Israel is now a nation, that's proof. Things getting worse yeah. is proof that the narrative is true. Yeah, and as opposed to just a lived reality that we have to, you know, figure out a way that we to have live to with. grapple with. He's not interested in solutions it. or in. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a, actually a later chapter where he explicitly lays out the idea that these things all happen because people are sinful and there's no way to alter it or change it unless no. everybody just follows Jesus. Yeah. And, and it just made me so mad to read his, yeah. his, his little passage about the environment and knowing that and, and seeing that they were aware, uh, you know, and which I knew and that, and that instead of choosing to, to fix anything so many of this generation chose to go this way i mean the entire conservative movement really 
you know, the fact that there is climate denial in, in, in conservative politics, and climate change denial in this country, this all is because of the popularity of this kind of narrative, you know, even if they well, it, will not admit it, that's what and, this and is. I, it, it, to me, I'm, I'm still honestly like a little, I'd have to look more into like the history of how the movements sort of connect to each other. Sure. But it feels like, uh, the emergence of a deeply complementary set of beliefs between like, like the, the, the oil, the petroleum industry. Right. And, it's very convenient for the, right. You know, it's like, I, I don't know how much like Christian prophecy, like shaped the idea of climate denialism, but it was absolutely no, compatible with it. Right. And, yeah. Like, yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the, the whole idea that, uh, that apocalypticism is, is natural and it's uh, to be expected and there's nothing we can do about catastrophe. And that to a certain extent, attempting to improve the world materially is suspicious. Or to improve people's lives is not, is not just suspicious, but also doomed yes. fundamentally. Because I mean, this goes the, down to the, the, you know, the suspicion about, um, peace between countries and, and you know, the, the idea that that international cooperation is suspect and that Fred Clark in his like epic, you know, dissection of the Left Behind books even has, I think, a full essay on this idea mm -hmm. of like the sort of weird twisted quality of like a subculture that's that learns that like the Antichrist is going to pretend to be a man of, who brings peace. Mm -hmm. And thus, by the transitive property, peace is bad. Right. <laughs> like, I mean, it does. It, this book really says he does. He says that nationalism is what God has intended for governments right now, because because international cooperation will bring about the circumstances in which the Antichrist can take power. So. So, yeah. so like in, in the, the progression of the book, after you get this sort of like, hey, kids, you like astrology and palm reading and gurus? Well, <laughs> have, you know, have you, have you checked out the Bible? It's a hip book, too. Like that kind of opening. Um, mm -hmm. Like it, it spends like the next couple of chapters basically hammering on the idea that, you know, the Bible, there were lots of prophets in the Bible and they gave lots of prophecies and, you know, all these prophecies about the about Jesus proved that, you know, Bible, biblical prophets were accurate. And then there's also all of these prophecies about the future. And the biggest one was Israel becoming a nation and it, and it happened. So the rest of it is just this timeline we can all expect to, you know, plow through. That's like the first four chapters of the book like that's that's him just hammering on these points with stuff that is represents a very specific perspective on the bible yeah and i not universally held i think we need to say he thinks that uh, Russia is going to mount a land invasion of Israel. Yeah, like that. That's that's like after the whole like, hey, Bible prophecy is real and yeah. it's proven, and this is what's going to happen. That's when it kicks off into the stuff that's a that hasn't happened yet, but is going to. And the first chapter is mm -hmm. titled "Russia is a Gog," and uh, there's so many like 
he's trying for a bad pun chapter mm-hmm. titles here that is aren't a. really a bad pun. It's A yeah. and then the a capital G O G. Yeah, it's a reference to the fact that one of the nations talked about in Bible prophecy is called Gog, G O G. So he's saying that Russia is the nation of Gog, and the chapter title is Russia is Agog. Mm-hmm. Yuck, yuck. <laughs> so it's just a strange prediction to have at a time when the United States and Russia are involved in very, um, uh, <laughs> very public <laughs> proxy wars throughout Latin America and throughout, um, you know, throughout Africa and, and recently post-colonial nations, and. Like, I mean, <laughs> Russia and the United States both had their hands in a lot of things, but yeah. Russia's primary, you know, I, I think Russia's primary concern was not was not what was going to happen right. with Israel. It and, was not taking Israeli talk- territory. Yeah, we, we talked about this a little bit, you know, before the podcast. And I think like th- this this idea that Russia is going to invade Israel uh, was has was for decades was such a like baked in belief in like evangelical and fundamentalist biblical prophecy circles like the the post Lindsay era, um, it, it would that it like it was inseparable from like evangelical anti communism and evangelical support for Europe or sorry for for Israel you know the the idea that it's important that the U S back Israel because well you know Russia is you know gonna eventually try but to invade them like really but, bizarre because because yeah. uh, you know and and one thing that he does um that he does pick up on from the politics of that time is he's concerned because because communists are against christians in in his view right um and, and so he's and, you know that, that goes back to like all the other you know like uh estes perkle's movie which was mm-hmm. about you know like the cuban invasion and you know communists killing all the christians right so he is he is concerned he's not he never mentions latin america in this yeah and they're real and and you know <laughs> real Marxist movements happening throughout, you know, but he he doesn't, that's so strange that, that he doesn't, does he ever mention Cuba even? No. no. And, and I think this is, I think this is a signal. This is a, this is a branch of the religious right yeah. that came at the politicized stuff mm-hmm. from a very different angle mm-hmm. than the like anti-communist okay. um, movements. I like they, I, they, it feels like they inherited some of that. Like they osmosized anti-communism, but like they're not particularly interested in the global way that that plays out. Only or really what's interested in- actually going on in the world. Right. Like- they're, they're only really interested in it insofar as it might be able to hook into this canned timeline. Okay. Like it, it, it's sort of like, um, because it's, what's interesting. He's, he does talk about Arab countries and about, uh, African country, Middle Eastern countries and African countries becoming pro communist, but he, he never mentions any country. In Latin America. Right. Like I, I think ultimately the way he talks about that really is only fundamentally used as a proxy for allied with Russia who's going to attempt to invade. Yeah, and like, I've been meaning to and I one thing I wanted to ask you about this. He he also 
I may be skipping ahead a little and we'll go back, but like he thinks that um, he doesn't think that the Antichrist is going to come out of any of the communist countries, like some versions of dispensationalism thought. He thinks that it's going to come out of the cooperation that's going to be necessary to defeat communism. Right? And, and That's is, what he says. That that this yeah. person is going to come out of some kind of resurrected Roman Empire that's going yeah. to come about. But, but anyway, I'm getting is, like, is that the common belief though? Because I always thought that they thought this no. was gonna be a communist so, antichrist. Okay. This is where I think like the so there's a comment i i may actually just pull up the quote real quick okay but like from the book um from jonathan edwards book super church that we've quoted a couple of times he yeah. actually talks about this like the sort of chaotic like incoherence in the post-1948 dispensationalist mm -hmm. movement okay um you know after israel became a nation so it he says um until 1948, leading dispensationalists had uniformly insisted the rapture would be the next event on the prophetic calendar. Mm -hmm. That was what everybody was waiting for. And then all of these other things would kick off. But the establishment of the state of Israel offered a convincing proof of prophecy. It was something they had been saying was going to happen, but it happened in the wrong order. And mm -hmm. um, again, quoting, you know, gradually fundamentalist theologians and authors began to revise their systems to integrate different prophecies into the narrative of the pre-rapture church at different times. And these interpretations mm -hmm. were given a certain degree of doctrinal credibility when the new Schofield Bible came out in 1967 okay. and had a bunch of updated like footnotes and stuff like that. And then some of these alternative approaches were popularized or by Hal Lindsey's book. Okay. And um, he, so he's quoting from yet another um, scholar, but who says that under the, these doctrines undermined the coherence of dispensational ideas okay. because there wasn't some single unified timeline or single unified take anymore. Okay. Um, but in particular, as Lindsey's book demonstrated, they opened a path to increasing sensationalism in prophetic narratives. Yeah. And <laughs> a new investment in the political world at the same time mm -hmm. because everyone could invest prophetic meaning in whatever current events were going on. Okay. And it sort of shifted it from the realm of theology and everyone waiting for some particular event to like that sort of spectate to that like participant sport. Yeah quality and so like you say, you know, that's weird. I don't remember anybody who thought that. Like Lindsay's book sort of was at that era when there wasn't a single coherent narrative about like where the Antichrist comes from or what. Is there now, do you think? Not, like, not really. Okay. Like there are, there are different little camps, like, you know, people who are big followers of a particular person's book or something like that, where one author may have made a strong case, they think, for the Antichrist will come from Romania or, you know, something like that. But there isn't some sort of unified theme. And again, think, that's obscured by this habit of everyone talking as if their take on it is the only take. Well, and this was so funny to read because I just felt like how Lindsay must have been devastated when the Berlin Wall came down. And um, Well, well uh, I, I, 
I've got a note in like our, our big themes and it's like, this is very much a book of its time. And by he that really I don't... needs, he really needs them to get in the communists block to get into a world. Right. Ending. Like, and yeah, and like there was also an era when like, um, you know, in revelation, there's a thing about like, a you know, 10 nations coming together and forming mm-hmm. an alliance. And the big thing was like, Oh, well, obviously that's the European union. But well, that's, that kind that's of the, when um, more nations than ten joined the European that, That's moon. just a. That's just it's it's about the verse about the diadems on the head of the beast. It's the ten, the ten. Yeah, it's not. It's not like it, Revelation doesn't say they're going to be ten countries. You know, but that's what it, they right, believe. Like e- even. <sighs> It, it, there's a degree of like meeting dispensationalism halfway that's necessary to even make sense of a lot of what's being said. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I think you mentioned, you know, that quality of this. I think, you know, when we were talking about it a little earlier, you like summed it up with like, does this make sense to anybody? Like, d- does it <laughs> like, because so much of it is like, built on stacked layers of if you take x as a given then you take y as a given on top of that then we can start mapping current events to that but yeah i really would not call it an informed take on geopolitics of the air because (laughs) i mean (laughs) discreetly delicately put um, um i mean even i think we should talk about the 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 four empires and the fact that he thinks he thinks that the antichrist is going to come out of some kind of like i've said resurrected roman empire and that that's what hitler was trying to do yeah i've got this pull quote that i've got he's talking about like all these people who tried to resurrect the roman empire throughout history it's like does anyone doubt hitler attempted to put rome together again yeah, and he, um, he writes, uh, <laughs> a Scottish Bible scholar has written, the extraordinary fact is that emperor worship was not imposed on the Roman Empire from above, it grew from below. Shades of Hitler. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it's like, uh, and the th- that comes in the context, like, you know, we were talking about the sort of progression this follows. There's after the, hey, biblical prophecy is real. He's got this whole chapter on like, no, Russia's going to invade Israel, really. And then he's got this weird chapter on like Arabs. They're strange, mysterious communists bent on destroying Israel. They'll probably team up with black people. Yeah. Then like he's got that inc- that that somehow upping the anti-racist chapter on titled The Yellow Peril, mm-hmm. which frankly baffles me because China didn't even have a big role at all in biblical prophecy before or after that. It seemed his whole chapter. This is just him. That that was so This is just Hal Lindsey. And because he bases the whole connection on the idea that Revelation mentions, quote, a king in the East. (laughs) China, definitely China. So, I mean, like he, I think one of the quotes that I circled was for centuries, Asia has had a tradition of backwardness. Oh, like that that's that's sort of that's, that's the kind of thing the, that's yeah and yeah and it's delivered with the same sort of breezy i don't really need to back this up we just all understand this quality that like all of his other biblical prophecy comments are but it's like whoa you just like that was just a racism right there that wasn't even biblical prophecy you just 
slipped that right in. Mm-hmm. Um, but like once he gets through, like, and he the thinks. Movie, by the way, he thinks this that it's part of prophecy, the Book of Revelation, that uh, that this quote Asian horde will wipe out a third of the Earth's population. Yeah. So, it, and and again, this is this isn't a universally held belief, even amongst biblical prophecy believers. But I think it's a troubling example of how malleable yeah. the raw materials of this stuff are. Mm-hmm. Because it can basically be shaped into a, like an epic, like fate of the world is on the line um, case for any kind of frame of who's our enemy and mm-hmm. who's our ally that this, the the writer or the speaker wants to bring to it you can assemble these this clay into almost any shape right and i think we should actually uh read the quote that you uh picked out a little more we should go a little further it says it also says though the people of asia have always been numerous in population they lagged behind the west in education science and technology for hundreds of years, Asia chose to remain isolated from the world. Then that isolation was broken. So, this is not uh, a nuanced, as you said, not a nuanced take or a highly informed take no, on geopolitics. No. Um, mm. But like that, like, and it's just after this sort of like parade of what different people groups were going to like be weirdly racist about he's got like a couple of chapters of that and then it goes into like the whole rome revival of rome and like hammering on the hitler thing a lot yeah Um, we should say that black people have no real agency in this except as being pawns of communism who will probably join up with the uh with the middle eastern countries to attack israel yeah yeah um no humans really come out well in this yeah but groups that aren't white evangelical christians come out particularly not well um but yeah i never read that hitler was trying to uh revive revive Rome. rome at all that was no, not, it, you know, he was of, trying to re- revive his, his conception, un- a historical view of, of what ancient Nordic people were, you know, and, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and that's, yeah, he, the, this, he's a lot not of at all interested in Rome at all. So that, this is just so bizarre. It is yeah, and, like, oh, it's a great empire. I don't know anything about Hitler. So he must have been trying to revive Rome. That's obviously what this was, you know? But then um, you go to the next chapter where he dives deeper into this, like, who's the Antichrist going to be thing? And that's called the future Fuhrer. Yeah. He likes his alliteration. But, mm-hmm. um, and, and it's, again, it's shot through with 
just really weirdly breezy bad history takes. Yeah. Um, and this is particularly interesting because we just did such a deep dive into some of this stuff in some of the early apocalypse, you know, portions of this series. Right. But one of the comments he makes in this chapter is when Christians refused to call Caesar their lord, Rome subjected them to inhuman persecution. But in reality, like what put Christians on the wrong side of Roman authorities was primarily growth, like Christian evangelism in like the urban elite rattling Roman society, mm-hmm. not them refusing to call Caesar their like to call Caesar God, God because yeah. there was already a long and carefully negotiated history between Jewish uh, Jewish groups in in uh, Palestine and in Jerusalem about like how to handle this whole Caesar wants tribute and he wants respect but we only worship God issue that was like an established thing. <laughs> and mm-hmm. no. it wasn't some sort of thing that the, the Christians brought to the table, their like refusal to openly worship Caesar or something like that. It would like yeah. he just tosses so many of these things out there in just And given the anti Semitism of the of the book, I do think that the uh treatment of Hitler in particular is pretty significant. Like um this the idea that he's trying to revive caesar worship like there were ways in which the nazis valorized certain images from the from the ancient world right of, of yeah, certain like, like they, figures or what you know they they but, hit a grab bag of all kinds of like imagery but this is ridiculous i mean yes. yeah <laughs> Yeah, it, that that that's a theme. You know, that's a theme with Al Lindsay's stuff, and and so there. You know, there's subsequent chapters on you know like the fact that people are interested in the supernatural and Eastern mysticism, quote unquote, is more evidence of you know the of Bible prophecy because that's the Babylon mystery cult that Revelation talks about. But you know, in in the first chapter, oh. he also said biblical prophecy is. Like that stuff. I, I want to. I want to mention one thing. I don't want to forget to talk about this okay. quote on. Uh, okay, so he said it's. We're getting to into talking about the Antichrist. He says this person, the Antichrist, is called the Beast, uh, because from God's point viewpoint, that's exactly what he is. He, you know, he's pure evil and stuff. Uh, it says the, but the the passage it talks about a dragon giving him power and him having the head of a the mouth of a lion and the, you know, all these animal like characteristics. But then, then Lindsay says the passage is obviously talking about a person because the personal pronoun he is used. Uh... He is also <laughs> described as a person of great sort. Like, like animals don't have, don't, yeah. you know, no, no one's ever called an animal. A he, a he Right. That, that would just be silly. That would be impossible. Like we don't call dogs all he's or anything. And <laughs> yeah, and, and again, like that's it, it's a great example of like the when when people talk about literalism in these things, it's a very right. fuzzy term of art. Right. Um, it's really not literal. It's just a very specific uh, interpretation. Oh, um, I, I'm just looking on the next page. I think we should talk a little bit about. Um, 
their paranoia about ecumenicism or like the, yeah. the cooperation so, between different types of Christian denominations, like exemplified by like the World Council of Churches, which is actually a really pretty a good organization that does that does anti-hunger stuff it does well, the crop walk the fact then, that you would call the, the those people good is exactly evidence of oh, why you're not fundamentalist <laughs> yeah um well like they, but they this, do this, they do things to help people <laughs> well th- this is a theme that's like really deeply baked into fundamentalism too right, right. like and and we i think we touched on this a little while ago in an earlier episode and several of the books that we've talked about covered in more depth. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, it's very tank. It's, it's, there's a very strong, like anti-ecumenical bent. Yeah. And, and this is also in the films, like in the later yeah. in the night films, there's a, like the idea of a world church. Yeah. Yeah. Any idea of like a broad umbrella under which religious believers can gather Mm -hmm. that is less concerned with the details of specific theology and ideology than like broad principles is viewed as Mm -hmm. a threat. Yeah. Um, And like, but that, that goes to like the fundamental arguments that were formative for fundamentalism as a movement too. Yeah. Um, And and it's also tangled up in like right-wing political paranoia about um, the United Nations as like, an enabler of global totalitarianism that would like threaten national sovereignty. Which is funny. It's just weird because I always like thought of ecumenicism as just kind of like having a community, uh, peace vigil or like, I've, I've never, I don't really see it as having that much to do with the United Nations, which is a secular organization. Yeah, I, I think oh, it's more they, that see, the way that right-wing political paranoia yeah. frames the UN. Okay. Fundamentalism sees like national and global ecumenical movements in the same way. As as another form of international cooperation and Yeah, it's it's more like yeah. they, they play the same role that the UN does in right-wing paranoia about mm-hmm loss of agency yeah um because in uh, one of the themes that's present in a lot of fundamentalist um political posturing like inside of you know theological debates is that there's a pressing paranoia about um loss of local congregational authority Mm -hmm. to govern its affairs Mm -hmm. and you know the idea that big denominations or trans-denominational groups of you know like the world council of churches might overrule like the local congregations and that's a real present fear that's that comes up a lot in like early writings in fundamentalist Mm -hmm. like arguments and it shaped a lot of the opposition to those like broader church movements that became associated with more liberal like forms of christianity in part because mm-hmm. the fundamentalist groups were opposed to that degree of cooperation with people that they might not agree with on every point of theology yeah yeah and and hmm. you know what what that dovetails with like biblical prophecy because there are a lot of sort of oblique comments in revelation about like the false church and the true church mm-hmm. and you know, the true church being persecuted and that did ties you know, in did you check the did you catch the part where he says christianity is not a religion 
<laughs> that religion okay religion is the can I, say, can I just read this he says yes. it's not a religion religion is the process of man trying to achieve goodness uh, perfection and acceptance with god by its his own efforts christianity on the other hand is god taking the initiative and reaching for man christianity is saying god uh. so, whatever so so christianity is set apart from religion and religion is what ecumenicism does uh and uh yeah um like and he's like this great, oh go ahead yeah and he's great at it no pulling off that kind of like a a category bait and switch yes to like contextualize an argument by re by saying ah but this thing isn't actually religion right. like doesn't <laughs> he doesn't put the work in to like carry that off no and it ends up just as like a a bumper stickery it's not a religion it's a relationship kind of yeah platitude yeah and it, but, but again so much of the book feels like that. it does it's, there's this other part where he's like at one of the universities in california fraternities are doing star worship in the morning like what i well, mean i i think they mainly are drinking clubs it's fair um you know, they, like they, we've got this series of like you know themes that come up in different chapters yeah. or whatever. Like it's it's like you know in the World War Three chapter, he it, it's it's really just kind of a scatter shot with it's he's got like some of these weird maps of like you know like Tom Clancy novels and type he's, stuff, and he's talking about a lot of things that he's maybe heard people say like about. Yeah things kids today are doing and he's like oh this is a sign that the the you know the end is near um very pods are a sign of the end times yeah like it, flavor and you know all, all of this really ends up wrapping up like he 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 talks about like more of these signs of the end times you know like kids kids into astrology and war is on the rise and stuff like that and yeah and he's, chapters... got this, he's like this one guy said he were, told me was interested in christ but then i saw him again and he said at college he learned that he should he started to worship the dark lord satan and he this is this is presented as a quote from that guy and like i i don't know i don't think really that was big in the in 70 Wow. Yeah, I mean, in, it, in colleges and and it's just kind of funny the and way it he indeed, so it doesn't even make much sense. But uh, right, um, know, but, but like, yeah, so but like the the book kind of honestly just kind of peters out too. Like it, mm -hmm. it's got a chapter about the rapture and yeah. how it's going to happen, and then there's like a chapter about Christ's return, and there's a and, chapter that kind of like restates the general argument of and then it's like yeah. if you haven't accepted christ into your heart you should do that but like it really kind of all feels half-hearted after like the the real meat of like where his energy seems to go is like predictions about rome and the antichrist and weird racism yeah. about different people groups and then World oh, girl, War III. That's an evangelical phrase, by the, uh, generally, right? 
Sorry, what was that? People groups being a favorite phrase of evangelicals. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) But but um, yeah. So yeah, it does. It just uh, yeah. He seems really invested in his version of what geopolitics means, and is which is weird because it's such a thin and ill-informed version right, of what you but it is like. what but, he's most interested in in this book i think and, um, and i think like th- stepping back a little bit to just like think a little bit about like the broader themes like this is something you've mentioned and i've mentioned we keep just coming back to it because it's kind of a head scratcher it it almost feels like like reading like a low budget like malcolm gladwell book where like you know there's there's some rough ideas that he's like hitting on Mm -hmm. but you know even when things hang together and he's like spinning a good story around some part of it Mm -hmm. you feel like if any if you know anything about any of the material he's referencing it just all feels tremendously shaky like the comment about hitler trying to resurrect the roman empire and stuff like that and it really causes almost everything else to feel deeply untrustworthy because mm-hmm. so much of it relies not on actually establishing an argument for something but just like tossing out a claim and saying and as as we know blah 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 mm-hmm. and moving on it and it's like, I sort of saw this in the power of positive thinking read through where like with that appeal to anonymous authority pattern yeah, where he would and- constantly say things like a number of years ago a leading businessman told me and then say yeah, something and treat I it as like he did it a little better than this guy's with yes. like I heard this college fraternity is engaging in sun worship, guys. So I Yes. Mean, <laughs> uh, that might just be surfers, you know. That, <laughs> but um and yeah, uh yeah, so at least Peel kind of tried to spin a story. Even though a lot yeah. of those anecdotes may, were were likely made up, but um, yeah, this is um, it's uh, yeah, <laughs> and and I think that it it's telling because you know when you start pulling all this stuff together, what he assembled wasn't a coherent narrative at all, or even an explanation of dispensationalism, or an explanation of even like basic biblical beliefs, or even a basic explanation of current events. But it was like what he did was like inject this like toolkit yeah. of mapping prophecy about the end times onto current events and a sort of language for talking about it in a way that gave it heft with other people who, quote, took Bible prophecy seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was that sort of like mix and match toolkit of building your own like eschatological framework. It was very frustrating to read because there's nothing systematic or. Right. It's he's basically making the case for the idea that truth is in Bible prophecy and you look closely at it and things are going to be happening. And it's critical that you look closer but at it's it, but easy to we're just going to kind of throw easy stuff to at see what it means. It. Like it, that, that it's just, yeah. it's, these are, these are obvious things like, and yeah, and I, I think it's, it's telling and interesting that like it hit it. It, it like absolutely was a huge smashing success in terms of sales. I cannot believe but it sold millions of copies. I would say, 
all of the fictional retellings that we've seen are big improvements on this genre. This is uh this is hard to get through. It's very tedious. It is and, and he wrote dozens of books. Yeah, after. he did. He did like, with the same ghostwriter. Um like Satan is a well and alive, alive and well on planet Earth, uh-huh. 1980s countdown to Armageddon. Um like there's a new world coming was one of them that also got turned into a comic book by Spire Comics, like the Archie Comics people. Hmm. Um, and it's really weird because it's basically like it looks and reads like an Archie comic book about the end times. It's huh. bizarre. Um, and um, like just dozens more. Even did fiction, but like it it, it really yeah. turned him into a huge figure in in yeah. that in that world one thing that comes up a lot too is um just that we've talked about is and that came up in the film a thief in the night is distinguishing between like the real christians and the christians of what he calls the apostate church which is the the church that that calls itself christian but has turned away from god and believing in a literal jesus as savior and like that you know, the apostate church that uh, doesn't believe what I'm laying out here and will those people, therefore, who believe those things will not be raptured. And the, and that you know, ultimately is, it, it's, that took a, a sort of article of faith in movement fundamentalism. Um, yeah. That the return to a true church versus the ones who are going off and, you know, just spinning this higher criticism view of the Bible and stuff like that, like that divide between the fundamentals of the faith and people just inventing man's religion. It Lindsay like really connected that to the apocalyptic narrative of like the rapture and the true church being persecuted. And like, he put it in that, he put that conflict that fundamentalism already sort of, understood the world through and gave it those like that that epic scale and that and the moral is you can save your own ass by believing in these in in, in these things but can you imagine so you're in what how would it be heaven the way in the way that it's described if you're thinking about people going through the worst suffering that the world has ever seen and you have any empathy like how are you thinking about this going on and you've left i mean what kind of that i think is that's the closing that's the closing argument basically in in the book Um, yeah but what kind of belief system is that like how could you feel good like oh it's what a relief we didn't have to live through that but (laughs) I think it's it's important to understand that that framing also connects with the way that certain evangelical movements understand incredibly aggressive proselytization. Yeah, it is. Yeah. A fundamentally kind and empathetic thing, even if it's it's like, even if it's like, plays out in really manipulative and abusive ways it's understood in exactly the way that you described Mm -hmm. it's like well 
but how would I feel if I were to, you know, to go to heaven, but know that these people I could have tried to win over are going through all this terrible stuff. But not just that, like, why would you even want that? Why would you want to leave, you know, people to, um, to torture, like, and, and you, how you is, wouldn't and that's why you've got to convert everybody <laughs> but uh, yeah i guess so but but they also know that that's not going to happen so there's this there's something pretty evil about about thinking you know how i mean you'd have some survivor's guilt right like, it, it's, <laughs> yeah i mean it, it's but i but i think that that is an inherent tension yeah. that's that's present there that that it's both i think I have known people who were like really fundamentally tormented by that and it really broke them up. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and it, it's creepy in the way that it comes out uh, towards oh, yeah. other people. In the way Especially when you look at somebody like Hal Lindsey, whose writing is deep, like he, he really wants to be like the guy with a military map predicting the future and stuff mm-hmm. like that in yeah. like his writing. He, he does not, tend towards a deeply humane and empathetic presentation of these things no it's not no. what is it's not the engine of you know behind all of this no stuff. and none um, of this literature does it's it's really just you can save yourself from this so you better do that um, yeah, you, you better do that and then you better try to save as many other people as you can too right um, um yeah <laughs> Although he, so, he doesn't even go that far. He just says you need to accept Christ. And I mean, he, uh, he talks about the importance of evangelism, but bit. like it's really oblique in, yeah. you know, like I, I think one of the clearest mentions of evangelism is um, when he condemns the Jew yeah. for not evangelizing. Oh boy, <laughs> for, for, for abandoning their duty to evangelize, he says. Yes, and it, which which oh. manages to combine like a whole swath of deeply offensive and really weird things. Yeah, that we need to, to talk. I mean, maybe a little more about the gen, the the um, anti-Semitism of this book. Um, I mean, it is. It and, and it goes beyond just the problematic aspects of, of like normal evangelical dispensationalist Israel. Yeah, weirdness. no, he's like, obsessed with what he calls the Jew, and and he and uh, he says abandoning um, ev- evangelism. And uh, so this is this is in chapter eleven. Um, yeah. it's, I've I've actually got the quote jotted down. It's okay. in the Old Testament. Evangelism was the task of the Jew, hmm. of course. He seldom fulfilled that obligation, which is one of his great failures. Yeah. Yeah. I underlined that. I was like, oh, my God. Because, like, not only is it deeply weird and universalizing as a statement about all Jewish people and with that weird, like, framing of the Jew. Mm -hmm. Also, even in the context of Christianity it projects back a deeply evangelical view of the faith and its responsibilities that only made sense theologically in the context of like post-Christ Christian proselytizing. It's like even just within the theological construct of Christianity, that's a weird, weird angle to And then he says that... But the the you know after the rapture these Jewish people he calls them the Jew 
will become obsessed with proselytizing for for Christ. Um, because now they're the good guys. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, I, it like I mean to, to for people who have sensed that this is this is a deeply anti-semitic perspective. I mean, it's just he really digs in in ways that were surprising to me. Uh like yeah. Yeah. And and he says he says um during the tri- okay. He says during the tribulation the spotlight is on the Jew. In the book of Revelation, the Jew is responsible for evangelizing the world again. I feel bad for even reading these quotes and saying the Jew this much out loud. I've never, it, oh my God, this book. I, I never really anticipated that I, I would, yeah. But like, it, and it, it's, it, it's like it in some ways you can say like there's certain ways he frames certain statements and ideas that are like very regressive and retro like, like, like someone who continually refers to like Asia as the Orient or something like like that kind of thing. He does do that too. So he's not, but then like, but then it's like also like even terminology aside, even like, okay, that's not what we call things now. That's not cool. Mm-hmm. Even those issues aside, like the, just the, the meat of what he's saying. The obsession is... with this and, and the idea of this is what, uh, you know, one of the Jews great failures and the, you know, the for not being evangelical. Right. Yeah. <sighs> Basically. So. Mm. Yeah. So, it's really unsettling to read. Be, yeah. For the, yeah. Like, to, to, I guess if, if we were to if we were to wrap this up and, and sort of summarize, you know, we've talked about like the broader, the the underlying theology and history mm-hmm. of like these apocalyptic narratives, yeah, and the rise of dispensationalism as an interpretive framework and how like the commercialization of rapture narratives was a part of the rise of Christian media and publishing, um, but I think. Like what we can take away from Hal Lindsey's book in particular is sort of the final form of like the weird rapture toolkit Mm -hmm. that from this point on, like it could pretty much be built into whatever anybody wanted it to as long as it hit certain thematic notes. Like you got to explain who the Antichrist is and you got to, you know, figure out who it is that's going to be invading Israel. And, you know, those kinds of things, as long as you hit the right notes, you could just sort of assemble anything that supported and animated your prejudices and the goals that you wanted to be you know what you, that you wanted to pursue yeah and i think that's the the weird and troubling aspect of it and the the sort of fundamentalist quality of hiding the interpretive framework behind the pretense of plain and simple literalism mm-hmm. also can help mask that you know you've just cobbled together a uh, biblical prophecy justification for what you wanted quality that a lot of these things yeah oh um um, yeah yeah that is true um and it's really disturbing to me that the 
the the this this set of bigoted <laughs> statements uh, made it into made it, it was the zeitgeist of, of the time like um i just stumbled on another passage where he says this is false prophet who's like the the um the 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 satanic john the baptist who is serves the antichrist is is will probably quote this man will probably be a jew who works closely with the world you know probably he doesn't say why or and and i mean i'm also just going to put a pin in the fact that it is a bold flex for hal Lindsay to call somebody a false prophet yeah having (laughs) publicly claimed that that jesus was going to return in 1988 indeed um which I am pretty sure didn't happen. No, um, no, and, and but just this, this was the book. This was the one yeah. that he went. Those this book where he doesn't even try to hide the the bigotry, racism, and anti the anti semitism that like I feel like later versions of this are going to try to hide these things a little bit more. Yeah, the um, the the themes are still there, and if you're attuned enough to some of the dog whistly you know themes they jump out yeah. but like this was like before before it got prettied up <laughs> if right that makes sense. before yeah they stopped trying to obscure the the ugliest aspects of this i think yeah, yeah. so in conclusion i would say we wouldn't recommend reading it but knowing oh. about it is useful. Yeah, it is helpful because if you ever want to see just this perspective distilled and you want to know what what these people kind of really think behind the nicer versions of it. That... Or even what what the building blocks they're working with are. Yeah. Like, I, I think there's a lot of people who, you know, like, this is, now it's like, it's 50 years old. So like this is this book came out half a century ago, and I think it's there's a lot of people out there who are probably like you know rolling in the like post left behind era yeah. that have internalized a lot of the sort of the beats yeah. of the timeline and the themes there without even knowing that this is where it came from, but yeah. the sort of the post Hal Lindsay world that of sort of you know diy kit bible prophecy interpretation is really soaked in and it means that people even with wildly divergent views of what's going Mm -hmm. to be happening can sort of talk to each other like they're on the same page as long as they have those sort of like key touch points that they know to refer to and this is definitely still in print uh into, yes, the, it two, is. into the well into the 2000s um i am curious whether the later versions took out some of the explicit racism like i don't know i'd, I'd be kind of shocked honestly yeah okay <laughs> like I'll, I'll i'll dig into it but yeah. i guess this having having slogged our way through the late great planet earth I think we're we're a little exhausted from this apocalypse. Yeah, stuff. we are. Um, it, it like there's a whole industry of these books and films and and everything that that follows it. And you know, and every once in a while, I think we may return to like a standout yeah. book or something like that to take a look. Like at some point, we're going to probably have to touch on the Left Behind books mm-hmm. because of the role they play. Yeah, but 
I feel like, you know, this, this series, our goal has been to sort of help frame and understand like what the big picture of these apocalypse and rapture narratives yeah. mean to a culture. And I hope <laughs> as you've listened and slogged through with us, it, it makes a little more sense, yeah. you know, and maybe not the details, but at least the, the shape of it and how it, what role it plays in sort of a view of the world and the view of current events. Yeah. Um, um, I, I'm not entirely sure what our next episode is going to be, but I, we, I am, we are working on a series about reconstructionism, um, which, which is another really dense and um, downer of the topic. Um, but uh, I, I will attempt to bring as much um, grim droll dark humor as i can yeah. to the to the to a dark topic but it it is it it's very interesting um a lot of like the history of um like modern politicized evangelicalism and like the homeschooling, the homeschooling movement. movement and ideas about title. child discipline and you know the ideas that become really abusive in um in you know things like that so um but we we've also got a we've got a sort of backlog of additional like sort of aperitif topics that we can intersperse yeah, more fun things that we might talk about. So we may we may touch on something like that, you know. Right. Like who is DC talk or something. Yeah, um, we might. Yeah. But, but in the interim, um we hope that this has been uh uh an at least interesting and enlightening uh episode and series. Yeah. And uh if you're interested in uh, checking out more episodes, uh, you can find us on uh, rightcast.substack.com. We're on Twitter at uh, CWrightCast. And uh, you can follow uh, both Kristen and I. Um, I'm Eaton, E-A-T-O-N, on Twitter. And uh, you're uh, Kristen... Wait, Kristen dot Rawls, K-R-I-S-T-I-N dot R-A-W-L-S at Gmail. Oh, no, excuse me. No, I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Just at no, well, Kristen dot Rawls. And I, I guess you also know how to reach me by email now. Um, <laughs> so... It it and uh, we we've really appreciated the feedback that we've gotten and the questions that we've gotten from folks yeah. as we've uh, worked in the series and uh, we hope that uh, we hope that subsequent episodes are going to be uh, interesting and fascinating too and yeah. hope you have a a great week. Yeah.